This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. When you hear that music, you know two things. That it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And that the weekly news panel is about to get together. In fact, it already started during the commercial break. Uh, They had to literally turn down our microphones as they counted us back in for this segment. So let's welcome into the show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hi, Dave. And hello, Michelle. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So should, should, should we scrap the UN Climate Summit and talk about cross-border Just shopping? Just talk about shopping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> done and done. Yeah, talk about retail therapy? No, no, no. I think I think the people want to hear We're us. We're very deep and profound, guys, I swear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the people want to hear us talk about the UN Climate Summit. That's clear. So the U- United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai has been a bit of a mixed bag. Well, let's be generous and call it a mixed bag. COP28 did get a few commitments in the early days around disaster relief for countries affected by climate change. But things have really gotten bogged down as countries debate the future of fossil fuels and, you know, the idea of a petro country, United Arab Emirates, hosting the climate conference. Uh, Joita, what do you want to drill into here? (laughs) I think um, these con- these climate conferences are gathering spaces for a lot of activists and negotiators to try and hammer out how we get around to um, improving the situation around the climate. And yet, year after year, we have these big conferences, thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people congregate and they come together and they have speeches and they make pledges. But how much is actually changing? And I think the really core question here is, you know, do people still feel optimistic or do they genuinely feel pessimistic when these conferences come into play? Are people even interested in tuning in? I mean, maybe you're a a reporter and you're covering this, but do ordinary people find that these conferences Mm. uh, resonate with them? And then, of course, as you say very correctly, there's the optics of the whole situation. You've got an oil-producing country playing host uh, to COP28, and you've got... Um, I mean, this is true for every year. You've got thousands upon thousands of people flying in and flying out, and these conferences leave behind a massive carbon footprint. So, I mean, there's a certain irony there Mm -hmm. as well, if you stop to think about it. So I'm sure we can uh, dive into some of these questions as we go along. Okay, let's start with the scale of the uh, optimism versus pessimism, or maybe right in the middle. I don't know if this actually counts as the middle, but like utter ambivalence. Because, Michelle, that's where I'm kind of landing here. I'm kind of landing at the point where I don't need the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, to tell me again that Earth is on its last limb and we're in our dying days and I don't need the fossil fuel companies telling me we are part of the solution. I don't need activists screaming at the fossil fuel companies and then at the end of the day all these countries go back home and then Pierre Polyev can yell about the carbon tax election and in three years the new cap and trade emissions policies and the carbon tax and electric vehicles all go out the window. Michelle, all that to say I'm getting a little ambivalent about international climate conferences. Yeah, I I think I suspect your view is shared by a lot of people. I, honestly, where I land is that I've, I'm more surprised by the fact that there was initial progress than by the fact that things have bogged down. Um, I have always been a little baffled by this model. I would love, love, love 
one of my like bucket list journalism pieces that needs to exist is how the decisions actually get made when they happen because I, I cannot fathom how these groups of thousands of people are able to reach any kind of consensus or how these deals actually come out when they deal even in conferences that have been productive like Paris for instance where there was a concrete deal that has been a guidepost for oh a decade plus now <laughs> uh, we keep seeing those commitments getting kicked down the road so even even those conferences that result in some kind of agreements don't necessarily see them acted upon or binding in any way so I yeah I have I think there's a lot of reason to be um to question, if not be outright skeptical of these sorts of conferences, because, yeah, we do hear a lot of the same talking points. But uh, I, I will say that the fact that there was any kind of unanimity early on and that any kind of agreements were reached uh, maybe has caused for me to temper my cynicism a little bit. I don't mm. know. But, uh, yeah, no, I, it's 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 a bit of a dodgy thing. And there's also questions to be raised about the, the composition of so many of these delegations, including Canada's. There were environmental companies, or not companies, but organizations that were sounding the alarm about how Canada has brought more lobbyists to COP28 mm -hmm. than to past COP conferences, mm. uh, lobbyists for the, for the oil and gas sector. So... <sighs> These things feel like a bit of a black box to me, I think, is where I land. So ambivalence, I think, is probably a safe characterization. Oh, okay. So Michelle and I are sharing a little bit of category, a little bit of a safe space there together. Joita, I know that as I laid that out for Michelle, I sound a little facetious, Rolly. I get that. I acknowledge that. I understand that. But I am at this point where... All these international agreements are fine and dandy, and international negotiations mm -hmm. are fine and dandy, and the Paris Accord is all fine and dandy. But to a certain degree, everybody, un well, everybody understands. I say everybody. <laughs> a chunk yes. of the population understands no. the urgency of climate change and climate adaptation and the consequences mm -hmm. that are going down. But at this point, I, it, it's going to boil down to domestic policy. Like, it has to boil down to domestic policy. So there can be the big dog and pony show in Dubai mm -hmm. or in Egypt or wherever. And fundamentally, I'm just going to tell you, like, unless you can actually get concrete policies passed in your own country, and Canada clearly can't do that, then, like, why mm -hmm. should I care about the UN summit? Mm. Oh, I mean, I think you need... You need yeah. both, right? It's like any situation yeah. when we talk about housing, for example, and I know we will probably talk about it later, we always sort of come to the conclusion that it requires all three levels of government to buy into housing and or transit. And even with climate, it, it is very important to have uh, policies passed at the national and provincial levels. But you do need, you do need uh, some sort of international cooperation on the climate question. Um, yeah. It's an un unavoidable reality, but it's just become so overwhelming to see thousands of people congregate like this and to really see the back and forth happening um, and get the sense that we're making progress at a glacial pace um, that it really like one really wonders how effective these conferences are actually proving to be. I mean, yeah, some good things came out of it. Um, the climate compensation fund is sitting at a at a $720 million, but I mean, that's a fraction of what is actually needed uh, yeah. in, in order yeah. to mitigate. You probably need trillions and trillions of dollars to make that happen. Uh, and wait, wait, really Joanna, hit, hit that number one more time, $720 million, 20, because... 
that's not very much money. I mean, it's well, a lot yeah, of money to you it, and me, but it, no. That's it. It's a, it's a lot of money. But, like, if you looked at some of the insurance costs of wildfires in Canada this year, that's, like, not even a fraction of the total economic no. impact of wildfires no. just in Canada, probably just in Alberta in the early part of the wildfire season. Well, that's exactly it. So, I mean, from the point of view of, like, an average person, give me a $720 million. I'd be happy as a clam, but it's oh, not yes, really making too much of a <laughs> But it's not making too much of a difference to the climate question. And I think that's really where a lot of the frustration with these conferences come in is that we aren't making a lot of progress. Um, you know, but the one good thing to come out of it is that there is more of a discussion about actually seriously phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, fuels. Mm -hmm. You've got 100 and, um, 106 countries signing a declaration calling for a phase out to fossil fuels. But even there, they're trying to water it down. Yeah. I mean, do we talk about a phase yeah. out? Phase do we talk down. About a phase down. Yeah. Like, what's going on here, guys? So, you know, at this rate, we'll never get anything done. How far have we really gotten to reaching that 1.5 degrees Celsius milestone that we were supposed to reach? I don't know if we're inching any closer to that. So, you know, it is what it is. I think... Um, there's a there's probably economic reasons why these conferences make a lot of sense for host countries to actually like have but i really question whether they're making as much of a difference to the climate question as they might have originally been conceptualized yeah when I start thinking about it, Juita and Michelle, coming back to you on this one, when I start thinking about it, I think we're past the time of sort of agreeing on goals. And I wonder if these conferences might have to start uh, shifting more into a knowledge sharing scenario. You and I on Monday talked a little bit about the way that healthcare and health and climate change were examined quite extensively on Saturday and Sunday last weekend. Mm -hmm. And that was yeah. really interesting to me. That was a very pragmatic thought Same. about the way in which some Thing operates in our society and how maybe some climate change could be impacted or the climate lens could be applied. I would love to see uh, countries that are bringing successful transitions to green energy coming to events like this and showing pragmatic tangible empirical results and saying here is the roadmap if you want to transition to a greener electricity grid or greener electricity generation energy generation i mm -hmm. think we've maybe reached past the point of simply saying the world is in crisis let's all figure out a goal let's start actually offering people solutions rather than like yeah. just fear-mongering Right. Yeah. I think solutions and concrete action are exactly what most people are looking for. I th I, I agree with you. The, uh, the, the model that you just, that, that we have right now, I think made more sense in the days of, you know, the Kyoto Accord, Paris Accord, further down the road when there was more wiggle room. Now we're talking about implementing huge ambitious targets in a matter of years. So how do we do that? That's the core question. We need to know how it's done. And I think a knowledge sharing model, uh, with some recognition that more some countries have more expertise to impart than others, it's exactly what we need. In that, a big objective of these whole of all these conferences is to try and get some buy-in from developing nations and for for more prosperous nations to kind of lead the way and set their targets and and do some of that heavy lifting. So I think that would be an excellent way to actually do that is to have those countries that have had some success on that, and it's not, it does not necessarily correlate with the most prosperous nations in this case, but if it does, um, to have those countries be able to share what they know and, and you know, adapt, there, there need to be conversations, people's countries want to adapt their infrastructure based on their individual circumstances, but all these things are a perfect forum for that kind of thing.
Yeah, the, the, there's quite literally there, there, there's quite literally a case study out of Central Europe and Western Europe in the last 18 months about an aggressive transition to more renewable and sustainable energy with the cutoff of Russian oil. Like, like there is an actual case study that could have been brought to the table at this COP28 that said this is how we did it. By the way, it cost trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars, but there is a case study yeah. that you can look at. And I, and I don't feel... Now, maybe this is a media criticism. Maybe it is being done, but it's easier to cover sort of the, 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 the infighting and the back and forth thing and the murkiness and the muddiness. But I think if there was a real focus, like maybe we don't need to get can together I, for three weeks for these conferences. Can I, mm -hmm. can I jump in on that one? I feel like if there was a real focus, the media is desperate for concrete things to sink their teeth into. Yeah. I feel like if those concrete solutions were out there, the media would have been delighted to jump all over that. So I <laughs> yeah. suspect it's not actually happening. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> kind of where I land too. Well, I've been looking for it. Like, to be frank, I've been looking for it. Because like, yeah. I've been looking for ways to cover COP28 this week that wasn't just infighting and what's the false future of fossil fuels? But like, that is the narrative coming out of Dubai right now. Uh, Joita, let's let's get to the ironies here. You brought up the ironies. Petrostate, air travel. I'm kind of at the point where I feel like this is sort of talking points for people who want to poo-poo uh, these kinds of conferences and even though I might be ambivalent I'm not outright poo-pooing them so I'm not really worried about reconciling the ironies but how about you yeah I think I mean you can't really you can't really have meaningful change around the climate without buy-in from the oil producing states that's just a, a fact an unpleasant and unpalatable fact but I mean sure you could have a climate conference that is restricted to non-oil producing countries getting together and um virtue signaling about how great they are and saying, oh, look, we're not we're not polluting the environment, we're not contributing to climate change, but how much good is that actually going to do? So yes, you do need buy-in from the oil producing company uh, countries. Uh, but then you've got um then you've got these really embarrassing situations cropping up where the chair of the conference, who's a uh a, a sultan at the in in UAE, turning around and saying, Well, I don't know if there's really a lot of science to back up <laughs> climate true. change That's and true. the yeah. linkages between oil production and having to walk those comments back and you start to think okay well hang on a second what is going on here so there are inherent contradictions and yet you, you, it's a bitter pill to swallow you kind of have to just deal with the fact that without yeah. the oil producing states at the table we're not really going to make a lot of headway on the on the climate question. And the other thing is, you know, you were talking earlier about the knowledge producing model. I think that's a good point. But also maybe we need to take a sober second look at how many people actually need to be at these conferences. I mean, I am yeah, it's fair. Yeah. of a democracy, totally. but I would be hard pressed to think that you need tens of thousands of people to make a decision about the climate. A lot of these um, conferences run simultaneously with things like film festivals and what have you. So it's like a, almost a bit of a party. And you have to really question whether you need all the bells and whistles. Maybe it's time that, yes, we do knowledge sharing, but we also maybe just restrict ourselves to negotiators from the governments, people who have actually got the ability to make decisions and implement policy changes. So I just a thought that, you know, as much as I love a, a party, as much as the next person, maybe tens of thousands of people congregating at, at once isn't required to make changes for the climate. Yeah, Michelle, I think Joet is onto something there. If you really mm -hmm. want to reconcile some of these ironies, you might be looking at smaller invoices because because you, you can't cut totally. out petro yep. states, right? Because by the way, if you're cutting out petro states, Canada can't go either. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I totally agree. I feel like the optics of 
of having it seem like a party are more troubling than the optics of having a host country be a petro state or the optics of requiring air travel, because I feel like that's inevitable. No matter where this is hosted, some people are going to need to fly in. That's just the way travel is set up these days. It really they, can't be they helped. Can't, they can't just take Greta Thunberg's uh, fiberglass boats. We can't just have <laughs> people cruising around on that. Right? Yeah, no, it was shocking, but no. Um, and and. and we do know there's there are differences between virtual and, and in-person gatherings. We, we, we've oh, all yeah. sort of seen that difference oh, yeah. over time. So, yeah, I, I don't is, – is it ideal that there's a lot of air travel involved? No, but I don't think it's it's anything you can avoid at this stage. And, yes, to, to Joey, I'm totally with you. To me, the optics of having more of that kind of festive atmosphere, of having these very, very bloated seeming uh, – again, perhaps there's – more methods going on here in the background that I'm aware of, but it, it does seem like very bloated delegations. You got to wonder what exactly everyone is doing there. Those optics bother me a whole lot more than any of the other things that were raised. Okay. Yeah. Let's uh, put climate change to bed uh, for, for, for now. Uh, believe me, it will come back over oh, there's, there's two more news panels between now and the end of the year. And I feel like climate exactly. change <laughs> is going to rear its head again, probably in our year in review uh, panel on December the 22nd or whatever the last day of broadcast is. I the time's a flat circle. I can't. Keep that sounds right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. But coming up next, another uh, somber topic A New Brunswick municipal council has declared a local state of emergency citing unprecedented rates of homelessness. It begs the question, what level of government is truly responsible for addressing issues of homelessness? This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods. <laughs> 